You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Thank you for joining us at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped and welcome to a very special Writers Live. So tonight we're so thrilled to host the launch of Decolonize Your Bookshelves founded by Eliza Romero. Um, she'll be in conversation with Gina Apostol, um, author of Insurrectos, to kick off reading and discussions about the creative works of South and Southeast Asian authors. After the conversation, we'll have a Q&A, and then there will be time to mingle and buy books from our friend Grady Reads. We are podcasting the event, so during the Q&A, please wait for me to come to you with a microphone so we can all hear you. Um, so now I'd like to pass the microphone to Jean Reed, um, registered nurse and clinical educator by profession. He's an activist by passion. The son of a U.S. Navy veteran, he is the Malaya Movement Coordinator. So please welcome Shahri. All right. Um, thanks for the introduction, Tracy. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so yeah, as mentioned, uh, I'm a nurse by profession, uh, but I'm an activist by passion. Um, I'm also a member, actually, of Malaya Movement, uh, a movement which in Filipino means free. Um, what I'm coordinator of is another like campaign center. It's called Bayan in uh, the DMV area. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> um, but I'm here to tell you that uh, even if it's celebrating its um, 121st anniversary of nationhood and independence, um, the Philippines is actually not free. Um, and what we uh, here and now um, need to do about that. So there, there's a continuing war in the Philippines. Um, a war to decisively chart the future of the country, um, both in the parliament of the Senate and the parliament of the streets, um, in classrooms and urban poor shanty towns, in the lush countryside of the, of the Philippines, and yes, even among us Filipinos that are overseas, continents and oceans away from our motherland. It's a contest of ideas and a battle of both books and bullets. Um, a big part of this war people are waging is the continuing existence of American colonialism, influence, and intervention in the Philippines, um, whose historical roots are like really beautifully analyzed and you know given life in, in this book. Um, we can even call the Philippines a neo-colony, a client state, a military foothold and strategic economic base, uh, and a dumping ground of our bigger white brother, with us being the little brown brothers. Um, it may not be the open massacre, though the 30,000 and counting victims of, of extrajudicial killings in Duterte's drug war is arguably high. Um, it's not as barbaric, though the torture techniques like waterboarding that are allegedly used to this day in places like Guantanamo Bay are said to have originated in the Philippines. And not as many boots on the ground as the largely overlooked and forgotten Philippine-American war Though the annual war games like the Balikatan exercises may closely rival it. All of that being said, however, even in Balangiga, General Jacob Howling Wilderness Smith of infamy could not foresee the utter carnage that occurs now. Um, there are the exploitative military pacts, the one-sided trade agreements, 
and the policies and tax dollars that are directly funding and even killing the Filipino people slowly but surely, with a ferocious yet insidious intensity never before seen on these islands. There's the case of, a, of an organizer, uh, a unionist, his name is Mao Chimaga. He's with a militant uh, progressive labor center called Kilusan Mayo Uno, or the May 1st Movement. He's critical of Duterte, and he was put behind bars for trumped up and essentially fake charges. Meanwhile, there's people like Bong Revilla. He's a washed up actor, um, actually accused of multiple counts of plunder. Um, but now he finds himself newly elected back in the halls of the Philippine Senate. Um, so now we're seeing a country where any form of dissent is silenced, and yet those indebted to the president are given favors. So um, in Interacto, as, as the main characters in the book, we're searching for a sense of identity and of history. Um, it was a kaleidoscopic treasure hunt, um, and piecing together the puzzle pieces, uh, they were doing that as individuals. But you know what I'm trying to uh, convey today is that by extension, we are transcendentally, vicariously joining them in this journey as a people. Just as Kiara's, Kiara, did I say it right? Okay. Kiara's search brought her to self-discovery, we are continuing the struggle and demands of the Filipino people, engaging in both the study and the writing of our history. So decolonizing, what does that mean? If, for me and for many others, it isn't simply and merely the passive reception of ideas, or a reclamation of certain suppressed aspects of our culture. But really putting decolonizing into practice means unlearning preconceived notions and misconceptions about our homeland and its people. It's a battle of ideas, of the old and of the new, of the colonizer and of the colonized, deeply ingrained in our collective psyche, in order to emancipate each other in the process. Don't get me wrong though, it's good and it feels grand that we're together today to gather and to talk about this, but we mustn't forget that at the end of the day, it's about concrete action. We recognize, just as we are right now, that art and media and literature are potent tools of protest, just as they were under the Spanish and Japanese and American occupations of the Philippines. And in the process of reclaiming our rich culture, we are in the creation of a new one where the aspirations and interests of our people are front and center. We have a long, as Filipinos, we have a long and proud history of resistance. And if that means we are casting off the yoke of oppression, and if that, uh, so be it. And if that demands that we are correcting and demanding reparations for historical wrongdoings done to us in the past, the Malaya movement and its allied organizations are going to ensure and make that happen. We can see it whatever way we want, maybe a sentimental link to our heritage, a twist of fate, or even a solemn duty forged and made hallowed by history, circumstance, frankly our status as US taxpayers, and a people both bound and liberated by the struggle. As you'll see in the brochures uh, laid out on the table in the back, uh, Malaya's main movements, uh, Malaya movement's main points of unity are for a stop in the drug killings, the extrajudicial killings, lifting martial law in the island of Mindanao. Uh, we're seeing no to fascist dictatorship in the Philippines, and we're ending political dynasties and corruption, standing for genuine democracy, sovereignty, and self-determination in the Philippines. So almost 400 grassroots activists and community organizers from across the United States, and even allies from Canada and the Philippines converged in Washington, DC exactly two months ago to discuss these points of unity among many other special interest workshops 
and brought direct actions, um, which Eliza and her family actually took part in. Um, so now I'm going to show you a video to give you an idea of what happened at this summit and, you know, more ways that we can get involved. Solidarity in the U.S. is our duty. Um, as U.S. citizens, our tax dollars are funding currently the uh, militarization in the Philippines. Um, our dollars are supporting the killings of families, farmers, um, workers, uh, journalists, and um, I don't think anyone, uh, many people in the United States are aware of that. Mr. President, you said just and lasting peace in the Philippines. And what have you witnessed in the past three years? Deterioration of the human rights situation in the Philippines. Show your hands! 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 
Most of my friends who got killed are tricycle drivers, factory workers. These are poor people who are just trying to survive. My friend uh, who got killed last month, he, his three kids uh, are now orphaned. And what are you going to do about it? The Malaya movement is really important because um, by doing what we are doing right now, it just shows people that it's okay to fight back. You don't have to be like a slave to his fear. You don't have to be silent. Because even if you're silent, you, you can still get killed. A lot of innocent people have been killed. The guy's a murderer. If he stays in office for the rest of his term, how many more people will get killed? It could be your uh, cousin, it could be your mom, it could be your dad. So for us, here in the States, I think it's important that uh, we contribute what, whatever way we can uh, so that we can try to like raise awareness and expose what he is doing. And yeah, basically that's what we're doing right here. Okay, um, so yeah, in, in closing, uh, to share with you some protest chants in Filipino, which have been around since the birth of our national democratic movement. And they flourished as a battle cry of our people under the repression of the first dictator, uh, Ferdinand Marcos. So um, it might be familiar to some of y'all who know it, so if you do know it, just raise your fist and chant with me. Um, so the first one, it's basically our, our version of the people united will never be defeated. So it goes like, ang tao ang bayan, and then the uh, response is, ngayon ay lumanaban. All right, so uh, who wants to try it with me? Ang tao ang bayan. Okay, <laughs> and then lastly, um, we have, uh, this This literally means um, struggle, do not be afraid. So this was a battle cry of unions, of repressed people, like, you know, urban poor communities undergoing demolition, political activists being uh, repressed and tortured, even under the first period of martial law. Um, so it goes, maki baka, and just to struggle, and wag matako, do not be afraid. So, um, so yeah, maki baka. Okay, so um, so yeah, remember that our people, the Filipino people, we have fought off colonizers and drove off dictators, and we have we have done it before, and we have every single reason to believe that we can do it again. So if you want to learn more about us in Malaya movement and our upcoming events and campaigns, uh, please 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 uh, see the table at the back. Um, or you can visit malayamovement.com. Maraming salamat, which means thank you very much. Mabuhay tayong lahat, mabuhay ang sambayan ng Pilipino. Thank you. Welcome everyone, I'm Eliza Romero. I am the person that founded Decolonize Your Bookshelves. It's my initiative and tonight is the launch event. Um, shout out to Malaya Movement. Also, a really big, huge thanks to Tracy and Enoch Pratt Library for organizing this event. Um, Tracy really believed in this initiative and the mission. You know, Filipino authors are so overlooked, even in the Asian American genre. You know, if you if you if you try to name off the most mainstream Asian writers, who do you think of? They're Chinese, like Amy Tan and Celeste Ng. 
or they're Korean, like Mary H.K. Choi, um, Japanese, uh, Murakami comes to mind. Um, but in the mainstream, how many Filipino authors can you really name? Filipinos are one of the largest Asian American groups. We, are, we, we come in third after Chinese and Indians, but if the U.S. census properly disaggregated um, Chinese and Taiwanese, then we actually have more than Chinese. So our numbers are huge, we're everywhere, but at the same time, we're invisible because so little is known about our culture. Um, you know, Filipino culture is so tied to American history. Filipino history is so tied to American history. You know, did, did you know that Filipinos were the first Asians to set, set foot on U.S. soil? That was in the 1500s in Morro Bay, California. Um, the first Filipino settlement that was permanent here in the States was in Louisiana, and that was in the 1700s. Um, for some pop culture, you know, uh, the Colt 45, that gun, was specifically created to kill Filipino people. It's because the Colt 38 couldn't get the job done. They couldn't bring us down. They, Colt manufacturers had to make an entirely new gun just to be able to kill us. And something fun, it's something I learned from Insurrecto, is that in Return of the Jedi, the Ewoks are speaking Tagalog. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but when C-3PO lands on Endor, one of the Ewoks says, Ano yun? Maganda! <laughs> YouTube it. You'll find it. <laughs> we, you know, Filipinos get lumped in with East Asians. Our struggles get lumped in with their struggles. Our issues get lumped in with their issues. But it's wrong to do that because our immigration history, um, our culture is, it's so different from theirs. There's, there's just no way to lump us in with them. We, we are so unique, we're so complicated. We actually have a lot more in common with Latin American cultures than we do with East Asian cultures. And it's really hard to understand if you don't come from that. So of course our literature is also the same. And just like our culture, our stories have so much fire. And that's what Decolonize Your Bookshelves is about. I really want to boost our stories and our narratives. I want to bring them more into the mainstream to show that we are an absolute necessity to not just American collective identity, but to our own, to Filipino-American identity. And it's about not just diversifying your reads, to make Filipino voices um, more diverse, or to, to just make them more inclusive. I, I want to make those voices dominant. We are born to love stories. I mean, what better way to create empathy, to generate interest, um, emotion, intrigue? We can imagine ourselves in the character's position, and then we can imagine what it's like to be that person. So thank you everyone for coming tonight. This is just the beginning. This is going to be a series of events, and this is the very first one. And now I want to turn it over to Gina, and she's going to do a reading from Insurrecto. Thank you. Thank you very much, Eliza. Thank you very much, Tracy, and the library for having me. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, uh, Baltimore. Um, I lived here, and my daughter was born here, actually, um, uh, a while ago. Uh, 
so it's a great um, honor to be back. Um, I will say this about uh, what you just said. So um, on one hand, it is very true that our, the East Asian culture and the Filipino culture as, as an Asian culture were very different. But in the history of the United States, I think we are very allied to, um, to, uh, to, to the Chinese. You know, I think, for instance, when um, the United States occupied, when the, the, when the United States occupied and took over the Philippines in 1899, um, 1898 really after the Treaty of, Treaty of Paris, one of the very first laws it, um, it established in the Philippines was the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, so our alliance with um, with the Chinese, with the Japanese, is very powerful. I will say this also, and this is why it gets a little bit confusing. We are also allied with the, with the Hispanics because, of course, the um, the United States came to the Philippines during the Spanish American War, which was the war in which they were trying trying to get Cuba free. But and they they come to the Philippines because the Philippines was um, was fighting a war against Spain. So just the multiplicity of cultures with which the Philippines is attached is pretty mind-boggling when you start thinking about it. Um, so <clears throat> I'm going to read from this novel has a filmmaker named Chiara and a translator named Magsalin. And so Magsalin reads the filmmaker's script of Balangiga and she decides she wants to do her own. So there are two scripts in this um, novel. I'm going to read from one of the scripts. I don't know if I'll have time to read later on from a second, because the, there are two things that maybe would be useful given the Malaya um, uh, preface here. But I'm going to start with this one that's set in um, Balaniga. And I'll just, maybe just as a way of um, establishing Balaniga for people. I'll just read. There, there's also a um, Madrab also has endnotes. It has, it has a cast of characters and it has endnotes. And I'll just read from this endnote. Balaniga Samar has been the eye of many storms. It was raised to the ground by Americans following a people's uprising on September 28, 1901 and by a super typhoon on November 8, 2013. The 1901 uprising of Balaniga may have been plotted by the Filipino president Aguinaldo's general in Samar, Vicente Lupan, but opinions are divided. Nevertheless, historians admit that the town's daring action is fit for a costume sarsuela with cross-dressing revolutionaries, divinely inspired heroine, chess maneuvers, and excellent use of ancient martial arts. The Americans found no women in Balaniga after the people's successful attack on the U.S. garrison, despite evidence of the women's presence the night before, when the great chief of Anador got people drunk at a fake fiesta. Who knows who those women were measuring out rice and bibinka to the unsuspecting American soldiers? The legend is garbled. In retaliation, Americans burned all the huts in Balaniga, having found no one in them except a lone woman. Then they also burned the outlying towns, Iporlos, Giwan, San Roque, Lawaan, Kinapundan. The body count is debated. Numbers of the dead range from 2,500 to 50,000, depending on who is doing the counting, blamer or blame. American forces in 1901 killed more people in Samar than history's most powerful super typhoon, Yolanda, also known as Heya. So I'm going to read from a section in Balaniga. 
the breeze of the Habadat provides a false soft against Balanida's heat. In addition, the convento's location against an inland river gives the men of Company C a daily noontime reprieve. You have to be nuts to get up at the height of day to trudge toward the water. Siesta, according to Filipinos, meets the rational demands of the island's weather. The laborers about town are released every morning from their jail to hack at trellises and random fruit trees, hemp-wrapped jackfruit that look like ugly, swaddled infants, fragrant fruits with a texture of sand called chicos, and that prickly fruit that always looks deformed, like the bubos, the actis, and when you scrape its insides, it is like everything else in this island, deceptive. Actis looks demonic but tastes like Eden. It is the custard of paradise. The men look sullen in the blinding swelter, but everyone on the island looks put out anyway. Randalls, the sergeant, hates this part of his job, babysitting docile mutes in the wilderness. These prisoners look harmless enough, as agile with bolo knives as the chief of police with his arnis sticks. And under his eye, the men at their hacking are energetic and careless, nimble and inept. But Randalls does not give a fuck. Randalls, the sergeant, would regret what had got him here if this shithole offered him the refuge to remember. His butt is full of maggots, and his prick has a rash. Pimples rot his face. His pale pink flesh is eating him alive. His limbs look swollen. Sometimes the sores appear in his nostrils, sometimes around his balls. I did a lot of research on syphilis. <laughs> his fingers look like baobabs. Pustular skin swelling about his death's head rings like botanical knobs around his infested scars. This is his reward for his courage in China, consisting of guarding the temples and the gates of heaven under the empire of the sun, another skull-numbing job that he seizes at the whores of Tianjin, Pekin, or maybe Nagasaki, who knows, this unrelieved sensation. Every orifice in his body is corrupt. It does not matter that the rashes also occurred in Indiana before the wars and in Fort Warren before the trenches. Memory, anyhow, is no aid to his wounds. His short-lived days in Malacanang Palace were his only solace. For some reason, his squad stationed at the mansion in Manila had calmed his crotch when for two days he had guarded fighting Fred Funston's meat prisoner, that tiny shop general of the bandits, his insurgent person already divested of all signs of revolution, many souvenirs, medals, combs, spoons, had already been looted by fighting Fred's men, so Randall's only spoil was one of the Mansori blood-spewing spittoons. As he had stared at that miniature martyr, General Aguinaldo of the Palanan jungles, Randalls could only think he looked like a Chinese doll he had once seen abandoned in a yard in Taku. Those two days against Manila's river, the Pasig, had soothed Randalls, as if the chilly air that swathed the inert captive were an omen of his own sufferings as finality, though Griswold the surgeon says his body's sense of reprieve is just his imagination. At no season in Manila is the air ever chilly. It does no good to wash every day. These neat-knit people here, they love their baths, which they take shamelessly in the open air like babies. Any form of cleansing makes his scabs tingle, opening up fresh pains. Rot from his dried pus sticks to his clothes. 
It embarrasses him, him to give his underpants to the women. Washerwomen are all gossips anyway, and in private, Randall's washes his clothes himself. Still, to his mind, a smell of rat, sewage, and humid blood always clings to his breeches. But when he falls into this pit of self-pity, he must remember that he came here across the stupid seas to save these sons of bitches. He's a vessel of God. Though what that preaching woman in a uniform, that captain slash pastor, Tommy Connell, knows about his dumb fuck soul, he could care less. Cock-sucking cunt. Pardon my Chinese. Captain Connell coddles the natives. Laws against touching the women. Laws against drinking the wine. Beware of fraternizing with the locals. What the hell was a good fuck anyway but goddamn benevolent assimilation? Randall starts giggling to himself, lifting one hand to his handlebar mustache to keep it in its greased place. His eyes smarting as involuntarily his hand feels up his pants. Fucking prick. It hurts. He giggles so much he's shaking, his woolen body a blue blur in the steaming sun. This squalid man who looks like a walking mop with bald patches, she hates having to go near him. She thinks clumps of skin might fall off him if she merely breathes by him, and then his putrid flesh might rain upon the air like the ash of Kainin. I once read this while someone, be someone behind me was making lechon. It was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, some parts of his face look like the crinkled skin of roasted pigs, the popped crunchy parts with bubbled fat. The children call him Kalabergalayao, corpse at large. That's no wonder, but to be honest, he looks worse. Kalu Oyi, have pity on us, Frank used to say. And once upon a time, she did. It annoys Kashana, Nationalis, that Frank's voice <coughs> muddies things up. He'd repeat her words and say them like Yawa and Bugas, just so she might laugh. Her words in his mouth had a childish joy. She had never disliked his people, she said to him, until you actually showed up. But isn't it good, Frank said? We are teaching you English. We are putting up the telegraph wires. The better to tell us what to do, the better to spy on why we do it, she said. She told him, there are consequences to your desires that you will regret, no matter how much you imagine your evils are unintended. That's deep, he said. She sighs thinking of Frank Vitrine, as the chief calls him, her lover boy. He's not a bad man, just an unconscious one. Kashana Nationalis prefers her venom pure, like the water she carries to her father. She had always been the fierce one as a child. Even the chief, when he has doubts now about the tactics, consults her. She looks down at the rosary against her neck. She must remember to list the details of the breakfast operation for the chief one more time. The keys that will be stolen, the bells that must be rung, the costumes mentioned where, wait for her signal with the rosary beads. A good number of men must go for the barracks, a good number must go for the mess hall, but the best men must go for the officers, the captain, the lieutenant, the surgeon, they all need to die. Count them. Count them. Count your men. She keeps telling the chief, you need to have enough. Get more. Call in laborers from the other towns. Explain it to the captain. He needs more workers to sweep up his camp. And when the captain refuses, keep pretending. You don't know what the hell he's talking about. You're good at that anyway. Then go ahead and do it. 
That is always a good trick. The officers are the key. Leave them for the best of your men. With the head gone, the Americans lose their spirit, and our people will leave no one alive. She keeps repeating the plan. Sometimes the chief forgets the details, but in truth, he's soft-hearted. For instance, that Bumpus, that alcoholic, the, chi the chief says, he's so nice. He likes that Lieutenant Bumpus because the chief can beat him at chess. And the doctor, the chief says, he's a good man. He just likes to talk. He's a harmless chatterbox. So, Maria said. Kashana thinks, men have the hearts of babies if you do not keep them in line. So she keeps repeating the details to the chief. The women must be told so they can escape ahead of time. The pigs must be sacrificed. The fiesta strategy must not be suspected. Anyway, it's easy to indulge these drunkard Americanos in their gluttonous ways. Lastly, disguise your men. The Americanos will be suspicious if they see no women at mass in the morning. I will make sure the wives leave their skirts behind. So many things to think about. And the chief, that chestnut, is her lone confidant. The mayor, Capitan Abain, is still pretending to be deaf and dumb with too much conviction and just keeps petting his chickens when she goes near. Even the priest looks a bit distracted when she gives him the lowdown, though he was in on the idea from the start. He's threatening to leave when the going gets tough, but that's a man of the church for you, and so it is up to them. The women. Tashana hates having to carry the heavy tubes of water up to the plaza where the town used to hold the fiesta dances, and now the Americanos have taken up the space. She wishes she could just scrape this occupation away and all these men, like the snot of Silot across a cracked coconut, or like the sins from her chest, the way Padre Donato says she should just wipe her bloody, sinful thoughts away with prayer. Her father is in their prisons for being a man, for having two hands that can work, that can hack at his land. Two jails that fit a dozen, but with 82 men packed in. Every morning, when they are released from their mass misery, she looks out for her father. He has those wide cheeks, which stretch even wider when he smiles. His smile, before the Americanas came, used to be so broad, it reached his sun-scorched ears. He has lost it. Sometimes she does not recognize her father, looking like all the others, skinny, gray, and beaten. He has worked so hard on his lands that his ripe rice fields once stretched to the edge of the forest, almost to Iporlos. The captain had commanded him to burn his granary, a blasphemy against God. Benito Nacionales refused. Sosmerio said, Kashana crossed herself as a mere shadow of the expression of the thought. Burn the rice. What kind of a devil, the commands the unmentionable act, then goes to church the next day. She saw them take her father, hands tied behind his back. She saw them carry their water containers and their hemp ropes for their cure. They spread out his arms and his legs. They tie him up on their contraption, a metal crucifix. They put a stick in his mouth and a gauze cloth over his face. They pour water over the thin cloth mouth. The stick cracks his jaw open as he cries. His mouth full of their oaths and his eyes wide open. His belly will blow. He will drown in his tears. This water is no cure. It is a curse. Captain Conyo, she said. Let him go. 
I will do it. The smell of the smoke was so strange and unknown to the people of Balamiga that the women came out from their huts looking about for its source, its scent. They gazed out toward the edge of the forest to the granary of the family nationales. The strange scent of burning trailed the riverbanks down Balamiga towards San Roque, out by Giwan and Hipollos. The news spread through their noses, the sweet and terrible smell, this news that was not benevolent, the news of burning rice, and the smog and the scent billowed over Balamiga as Kashana burned, burned it, burned it, burned it, burned the rice. And though it was not yet angelous, people stopped in their tracks as they hacked at wood, set the table for their absent men, fed their pigs. They stopped, crossed themselves, and mumbled a prayer. It sounded like insurrection. What kind of a devil burns the rice? And after she did it, she watched her friend, the red man Frick, and Markley the orderly bear her father away from his ordeal in Samar, from their bamboo buckets and their water cure. In this noon heat, she watches her father take his bolo knife from the sentry. Benito Nacionales accepts his own farm tools from the American arsenal of confiscated weapons without complaint. He will never be the same. All day for weeks, laborers hack at the grass, clean up the yards, make fences, cut down palm trees against the beach. For what? So insurrectos will be visible if they attack. So insurrectos will starve because they will not have rice. Damn, damn, damn the insurrectos. It occurred to Cassiana, who had always believed it a mere story, a separate thing, this revolution, that was a plot beyond their lives. It meant nothing to her. But that's it, she thought. That is who we are, insurrectos. That is how she explained it to the women. We are the insurrectos. There is no one else to do it but us. How strange it is to understand, finally, who she is, insurrecto. And they agreed. And why is this goddamn man's hands always up his dick? I told you our stories are fire. And those were just two excerpts. Um, can you tell us a little bit how you prepared to write in Sorrento? Because there is just a wealth of knowledge in this book that it's not easy to come by. Um, I, uh, I had written a novel about what I thought was the Philippine Revolution. It's called um, uh, The Revolution According to Raimundo Mata. But what I discovered in writing that novel was what the Filipinos call the revolution is the revolution against Spain. So the heroes that we tend to remember are those who fought against Spain. So I was trying to get that novel into the Filipino-American War, but I, I couldn't. Um, it, it, the novel's already too long. And then by the time he was in the jail in Bilibi, jailed by the Americans, he was, a, he was part of Aguinaldo's army. The novel's already too long. But anyway, um, so I really wanted to get into, to do a novel about the Filipino-American War precisely because I did not grow up with this story. 
Filipinos grow up with the, spat, with the war against Spain, even though we call it the Philippine Revolution. What we call the American occupation is peacetime. That's terrible. Um, and so as I studied the war, I tried to do with the Filipino-American War what I had done with the Spanish War, which was to try to get the story from the perspective of Filipinos, from the language, from the words of Filipinos of the time. We have a lot of memoirs of Filipinos writing about their experiences of the war against Spain. We have, I read only one extant memoir of the war against the Americans by a Filipino during that time. It happened to be a captured diary of one of the doctors of Aguinaldo, who happened to be Simeon Villa, who is the father of Jose Garcia Villa, the poet. But um, he was not a very good writer, Simeon Villa, anyway. Um, but uh, but he, was also, he was also a soldier. He was just um, detailing what the soldiers were doing as they were escaping the Americans. Um, it is very interesting to me that there is no memoir extant, contemporaneous, of that war. And there are some, I, I have some, um, uh, what's it called, this, theories of why. The counterinsurgency counter against Filipinos is barbaric. You can see here the water cure here. You can see um, the, the terror. The, the, the Filipinos were terrorized by the Americans um, in the fight against the Americans. The, Filipi the Americans who came, American soldiers who came to the Philippines to prosecute this war, the generals were, because they were older men, they were of the Civil War, the American Civil War. So they were united, the Union and Confederate uh, former uh, veterans, who are now generals, were united in this war happily um, to, to, um, to kill and burn in the Philippines. Their, um, the, the foot soldiers, many of them were were veterans of the Indian Wars of the 1890s, you know. So the killing and bur the the burning of the Indian villages, the the slash and burn in, in the Indian Wars were transferred uh, to um, the the Philippine War. So some there are some American scholars who have, who have called this um, this war, the Indian Wars, the American Indian Wars in the Philippines. Um, so. I think one of them is the, the brutality of the prosecution of the war, and once they lost the war, the, telling the story of the war was very dangerous for Filipinos. Um, the other thing was they were captured, so it was, an, it was an occupation, and so the conquest, part of the conquest of the, of, of the United States was public education, and it was a very smart conquest, because when you, when you take over the minds of a people, it's a very powerful um, drug. So public education, obviously, um, the, the movement from the harshness of wartime to the so-called peace time of the Americans, um, and the, the fact that for a long time, until the 1920s, the Filipino, the Katipunan, could not show its flag, for instance. It was so dire for the Katipunan that they couldn't show their, they couldn't show their flags, they couldn't sing their songs, they couldn't tell their stories. So those stories were buried. By the time people could be telling stories, we were educated by the Americans. So that's, uh, that's another story. The Katapunan in the Philippines was an anti-imperialist uh, revolutionary yeah. organization. Um, in the book, the, the Filipino character tells the white character, Kiara, to read the Ordeal of Samar, mm -hmm. which is an account of the Battle of Baliga. Um, it's a very racist book. 
I was going to ask you about that. that. Is that? It's really, really uh, annoying. I'll just say annoying. <laughs> um, but what it is, it's an account by, I think he's a British um, or American, some journalist uh, of, of the, it's, it's the, it's the kind of accounting of the war that was prevalent in the research that I did. Most of the accounts of the war are in the American voice, are in the white voice, mostly the soldier's voice, the contemporaneous accounts. The colonizer's um, the, voice. So it's the colonizer's voice. And so the structure of this novel was actually copying in some way, mimicking the way I discovered the war. So there's a whole kind of Teflon surface of other people's voices, and then beneath it is the voice that you need to hear, which is the voice of Kashana. And the voice of Akashana is ironic in that it's so buried. Yeah. How did you find Kasiana? I went to Balangiga and I found that um, the Balangiga is a very interesting memorial in Samar. I'm from Leyte. Samar is a sister island. We, we speak the same language. It's the two islands that speak my language, Warai. Some of the language here that you heard was Warai. Um, so I went to Balangiga and the memorial in Balangiga is very interesting because the Vietnam War Memorial in the United States, for instance, memorializes American names. But in Balangiga, it memorializes Filipino names and American names. So the American soldiers are memorialized, and the Filipino uh, revolutionaries are memorialized. And there is one woman's name on the memorial, and that is Kashana Nationalis. Okay. Very little smush. Some trivia is that the, the bells of Balinaga that you mentioned in the book they were brought to the U.S. after that battle, and they were not returned to the Philippines until last year. Yeah. That's how long December of last year. Mm -hmm. Did you plan for the novel to come out around that time? Yeah, no. The novel had come out before the bells arrived. Okay. The bells are, and here's, a, here's another complicated thing about the history of the Philippines. The bells arrived under the Trump era. It is Trump's defense secretary, Pompeo, who was very happy to return the bells and um, diss the people in Wyoming and somehow placate Duterte. I really do think that it has to do with, it's a geopolitical move in which people are trying to figure out uh, this, this crazy guy, the Filipino president, and who, is, who, who says, I'm gonna be with China. I'm, I hate America. At the same time, Duterte takes American tax money, Duterte, Duterte keeps um, the, the American soldiers who are doing what um, the Balikatan exercises, and he's taking, uh, he, and he's, he's creating huge horrible loans, he's, he's buying into the Chinese loans, so he's just getting money from everywhere. Mm -hmm. He's a real dick. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about this novel is that typically when, well, usually when there is a story about, um, about wartime, it's usually, it's usually talked about in historical fiction. So it's rare that you have a story like yours which talks about it in present day. Um, another thing that's interesting is that the Philippine-American War is such a blip on, in American history. It's but, a blip in Philippine history. But it's such a turning point in Philippine history. It's not a blip, it's actually really central to Philippine history, mm -hmm. but it's interesting to me that I was not taught this war. I, I did not, I did not read about Palaniga in my yeah, elementary school classes, high school classes. Of course I grew up during the martial law era, so you're not going to hear 
what we learned was Imelda, you know, Imelda's gardens, Imelda's house, Imelda's bridge. I mean, because I grew up in Leyte, so it was all Imelda Marcos for us, so, um, yeah. We had one line about it in college, and that's all we got. Um, Where did you grow I grew up here in Baltimore, yeah. and then I went to University of Maryland, mm -hmm. and when I took Asian American Studies there, that's when we had our one line about the Philippines. Wow, Asian American Studies, yeah. just one line. Yeah. yeah. Much of the focus in the class was centered on um, Chinese and Korean experiences, yeah. not on Philippine experiences. But the modern day, the modern day effects of that Philippine American War are still are still felt, mm -hmm. you know. And then even with Marcos, mm -hmm. um, can you talk more about modern day American colonialism? Well, I can talk. I can talk about material history, for mm -hmm. instance, which is that. Um, let's say General John Pershing, you know, mm -hmm. who was the first World War I um, leader of the expeditionary forces in Europe. He was a military governor in Daba, okay, where, which is where um, Duterte is from. Uh, Pershing, oh Pershing creates, uh, there, he doesn't have a military intelligence unit because it's not something that the U.S. Army has or does, has been doing during World War I. He tried to create it, who does he get? The counterinsurgency experts who had been who had been doing unconstitutional work in the Philippines because the spying on the Filipinos was was private public, you know. So so the Americans would it would just they had these, this guy, this father of American military intelligence, who was a Filipino colonel, uh, an American colonel in the Philippines. He created these index cards that are that were still used during the McCarthy era. Uh, uh, where you just try to get all of your different spy groups, uh, you know, not, not military spies, but including um, uh, civilian people, getting information about anyone who could possibly be an enemy. So Pershing sets up this security apparatus, um, World War I. It eventually is the NSA. So a direct uh, descendant, you know, a direct link between the Filipino-American War. Of course, what is the what is a, what is a colonial um, land like the Philippines for America? It's an experiment for the things that they can do to to control their people. Mm -hmm. It's a so the NSA, uh, that surveillance stuff um, that was um, that that comes from the First World War under Pershing who used his Filipino, um, uh, the Carabaos, the, the order of the Carabao people, as, <laughs> as they're called. Um, so that's what, just material history, how prominent this war actually is, especially if you're thinking about American military. Mm -hmm. um, during um, the Iraq war, when, uh, when the American soldier, uh, the American military was trying to figure out how to, how to gain Iraqi favor, you know, the favors of, of the Iraqis. Um, the West Point, I found a West Point document that was studying the Filipino-American War as a model, as a template for the prosecution of uh, so-called peacetime in Iraq after um, the Bush, uh, during the Bush era. So there's just all of that, but there's of course um, the modern stuff, which is that um, the Philippines, has always been an American interest because of China, but during the Cold War, it was an American interest because of the of Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So it was a refueling place for the 
and a, a lesser recreation place for the American soldiers. The Philippines had the biggest, the two biggest bases, uh, American military bases outside of America for a very long time until 1991 when they were kicked out during the Cory regime. Cory wanted to keep the bases, but uh, there was a very strong um, left-wing orientation in some part of her government at the time. Um, so, um, because of the Vietnam War, Cold War stuff, the U.S. propped up this military dictator, Marcos, very fascist, um, very, uh, who, 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 um, who, again, like Duterte, is, um, taking, uh, is basically taking over all of the institutions of a so-called democratic country and um, controlling uh, the, the Senate, the, the courts, the, the whole bureaucracy through terror. Because Marcos did it through terror. He had American guns, he had the American military. Um, Duterte uh, is outright killing people in cold blood in daylight, in some cases, terrorizing the country by killing poor people, whom he calls uh, adik, you know, drug, um, adik adik. Right, the, the war on drugs in the Philippines is really just a war against the poor, and, and that's it, that's, that's all you need to know about it's a terror. No, well, it's a terror, it's a function of, of, of the state to terrorize and control the populace. And so look what we have now. We have a Senate uh, election that happened under widespread cheating. It's the first time in the Philippines since 1938 that there were no opposition people elected into the Senate. It, the Filipinos don't do that. The Filipinos re-elected a president only once, Ferdinand Marcos. Very likely also, <laughs> very weird. But it's not, uh, the Filipinos are actually pretty resistant, are pretty resistant people. But terror is something else. I was really surprised when I was reading the novel to find how funny it is, despite having such a serious uh, subject matter. Like uh, the part, the, uh, the Elvis performance, where he performs Suspicious Minds in Vegas, I found that performance on YouTube. It has like 87 million views. And Mostly it's, Filipino. Uh, <laughs> and it's, um, he's insane looking. He's just like, he's mad sexual and it's almost uncomfortable to look at. So I watched that and I also watched the uh, HBO documentary on Muhammad Ali. But what does the role of pop culture and humor play in the novel? Well, uh, I think a lot, I mean, I would say that humor is a form of resistance that's very ineffective. Um, it's not that efficient. But Filipinos deploy it. Um, uh, very early on in the Duterte regime, there was a, there was a diner in Nabotas um, that had a menu of um, oh dishes called um, Talong Manatokhan, which is um, Tokhan is a term. Operation Tokhan is the term that Duterte has used. Uh, to uh, prosecute this drug war. It's, it's a Visayan portmanteau. So Duterte is Visayan. So he's from, he's, he's, he, his mother is from Cebu, his father is from Davao. So he's Cebuan. That's his language. Tokhan, tok, 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 knock, knock. Hangyo is plea. 
So the, the, the policeman knock, knock, then people plead for their lives, and then you die. Um, so tokhang, to call eggplant, natokhang na eggplant, natokhang na talong, is pretty morbid, but it's an aspect of Filipino humor that's really annoying and weird. Um, or how about the torture na pork chop? Tortured pork chop. That was also on the menu of this Nabotas diner. They were not Duterte supporters, but they were doing stuff. And when I, I wrote that up for the New York Times, how with language is actually a way in which you in which you can you can see, you can see fascism sneaking up on you. It's in language that things when when language changes and these new words start coming in that. Um, and it's particularly so, I think, in a, in, a, in a multilingual group. The Filipinos have many different languages. I grew up with three and possibly four, if I include Cebuano, because that was my vacation language. Um, but uh, so, so I think one of the ways that Filipinos deal with the huge horror that they, mm -hmm. that they have is really playing with language. I think there's a lot of language play. Mm -hmm. Even the revolutionaries, when they were I, I think part of the fun of being a capiponero was having to create the anagram of your name so that you can make your um, you can make your revolutionary name. I mean, just look at Filipino um, uh, Twitter handles. You know, I have a friend whose name is Chakulit. So her name on her Twitter is Chakulit because her name is um, is really Charito, so Cha, and she loves chocolate, so Chakulit. But it's also Makulit, so Kulit, which is like Kulit means annoying or something. So annoying chocolate lover. Chocolate. So anyway, just this constant play with language that is a form of, a form of identifying oneself, a form of resistance. Um, most, most foreigners, for instance, never learn Filipino languages because Filipinos will not teach them. They will laugh at you first, you know, before they, they allow you to get into their space. Yeah. <laughs> So we have time for one more question before we open it up to the audience. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your activism. Um, we're both part of Malaya Movement. Uh, we actually met for the first time last week yeah, that's when, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. in New York when we were both up there. Oh, she lives there. But I was up there for the Malaya Movement rally at the Philippine Independence Day Parade. And she was a speaker at the rally. But I think I read in an interview somewhere that you were actually organized as a student yeah. in the Philippines. I was organized when I was 16. Um, I went to the University of the Philippines, and this was during the martial law years. And for me, growing up in Leyte, I was always very uncomfortable. My family, my family are very pro marcus it's very sad. Um, I grew up with politics. I grew up with politicians, actually, who um, were politicians for marcus And it, 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 even as a child, I was very uncomfortable. There was something that I thought was not correct about uh, government that didn't have elections. <laughs> after my after my uncle was voted into you know office, it was like there, there it was. That's I don't know. So there were never any real presidential elections, and um, and there was just this fear that I thought was very problematic even as a child. So when I got to the UP, I always joined the marches. And I eventually um, became part of a group that I liked. 
I like the fact that the group was was very purposeful, and that's also what I like about Malaya. It's very purposeful. The the ideas behind the group were not just Marcos himself is a bad person. It was more structural and systemic, and so that I appreciated about the about the activism at the, at the University of the Philippines. It wasn't just about. Um, most of the people were quite bourgeois, I mean, I have to say, I mean, the University of the Philippines. But um, they were thinking about lives beyond themselves and not thinking about their personal discomforts, but really thinking about what's going on in a bigger way. So it was an anti-imperialist group. So they were looking at effects of the American, American system, American capitalist system on the Philippines. And really, it was a study in capitalism. That's what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, so it was more of a Marxist Maoist lens um, than it than it was just sadness. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. All right. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to open up the floor for questions. I think that Tracy, yeah, Tracy said to raise your hand, and Tracy will come over to you with the microphone if you have a question for Gina. And then there are also the uncles of yeah, Magsali. So they're also in the so-called, the more real life, in real life, you know, in, in current uh, Duterte Philippines. They're actually pro-Duterte. Um, but they are rebel, but the names, I, I gave the names to some child revolutionaries, uh, those uncles' names. What I really, what I would like Filipinos to think when they read a book, about this war against the United States is to remember who they were. That we were the first country in Asia to have this anti-imperial, anti-colonial war. Our resistance was novel for the time. We were innovators of our time in resisting occupying. And I want us to remember that. I want us to imagine ourselves in the space of those Filipinos. Because it is us, it is part of us. And to imagine that they actually did. I mean, what they did was pretty amazing. Because they fought in just like smogul, as we call them, slippers. You know, They barely had anything. They, of course, their food was being burned so that the revolutionaries wouldn't get their food. Um, and so this thing about where you have these, these uncles of the present day, and I, I gave them, and I thought it would be, would be very troubling to, get, to have them be pro duterte but their names are given to, um, to teenage revolutionaries in the war. But for, for us to remember, you know, we don't have to be this way. We don't have to... to um, to give in to the fantasy of a strong man that Duterte, I think, represents for many, many Filipinos. 
he gives to many Filipinos. And I have to understand that too. I have to understand also why Filipinos like Duterte. As a writer, that's also my job. It's also to empathize with those who, for whatever reason, attach themselves to a man who professes to be this um, iconoclastic, uh, to be honest, I think I consider him a clown figure, but many Filipinos consider that figure, he's a figure of the common man. Um, and so I, I try to also understand their attachment to that, um, which is a desire also to in some way say, fuck you to everyone, because the world has fucked me up. That's what a lot of Filipinos are saying. The Aquino government fucked fuck me over. The Arroyo government fucked me over. The Estrada government fucked me over. The Ramos government fucked me over. The um, Cory Aquino government fucked me over. The Marcos government fucked me over. Every goddamn Filipino president fucked me over. And it's true for most Filipinos because there hasn't been change in terms of the inequity, in terms of farmers being given their rights, labor, laborers being given their rights. There's been uh, a system in which the comprador, the in, earlier the feudal, the, the, we still have the feudal landlords, so come on, negros, um, where farmers are being killed by Duterte people right now. Um, so it's a whole system since from a long time ago that where the inequality, the class inequality, has, has been very, very problematic. So I would like us to remember, though, that at one point in time, we resisted. Unfortunately, our resistance, I would say, in looking at that war, was also nationalist, and I would like our resistance to be classist, right. an anti-classist resistance. Other questions? I think they, I think as an artist, I think they should be entwined. Mm -hmm. I do not believe it. In fact, I find horrifying and really, I know I, I'm an English major, you know, I grew up with, uh, to be honest, the English canon. Um, and, you know, we studied Beowulf through, through um, basically the, the Universal Philippines. It's, it's Beowulf through T.S. Eliot. <laughs> and then you have to, <laughs> everything is, yeah, everything else is up for grabs. It's kind of, but, um, and I loved it, you know, and I loved 
I love I love the the work that I grew up with. I grew up with Filipino writers also, um, so I'm very much influenced by Filipino writers in English in particular. Um, I will just name them: Nick Joaquin, Francis Ariana, um, and um, Estrella Alfon. Those are the people that are that I pay homage to. Um, but at the same time, you know, I under I understand how upsetting it is for me. Um, for artists to think that they are separate. I don't think they are. I don't think T.S. Eliot was. Obviously Dante didn't think he was. Um, I don't think Tolstoy was. I don't think Dostoevsky was. Dostoevsky, you know, um, was very much uh, the poor folk um, writer. Uh, I don't think we are. And I think if when, when we release ourselves from the fantasy that art is, is separate, that art is some other thing, and that it's not part of a means for other people to, um, for a means for somehow to imagine a world that makes better sense for people. Um, I, I, I think, I think art will be better. Uh, so I, 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 I can't separate my art from my polemic, which may annoy a lot of people, you know, and you know I think it could. Uh, I know, like in the New York art world, I can get really, really annoying um, with at a party. <laughs> um, but I do. I I think that we need to come to terms with the artist fantasy that this this concept that somehow we're separate is problematic for for. not very well formulated, but um, I really wanted to, you know, hear a little bit more about what you're saying. So uh, I guess I have two questions. First is, are you planning to come here on July 22nd for the People's uh, State of the Nation that we're having against Duterte? Again, in Italy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and second, yeah, I'm just wondering if you can say more about what you think the role of artists um, in moving people beyond just doing the, the fuck you vote and uh, where you've seen art being um, effective in, in doing that? There are two things there. There's one that, um, that you're making art, okay? And I will say this, for me, art and polemic always go together. But here's also the thing, when you're writing a novel, the novel is also just trying to come into being. You're working through what the art needs in order to get, in order to be what it is. There's something very, um, it's a thing. It's a thing that you're trying to make. And, and it's, I think it's a, it's, it's, even though it's not yet made, whatever you're doing, um, uh, it has its own integrity and it has its own demand. So I think that also needs to be understood about art. One has to come into it with the recognition that, um, for me, this is how I do it, with the recognition that it needs to be addressing ways in which I see the world um, 
and the ways I, per I see the world is that the art must somehow be addressing um, reality, reality as I see it, you know. And reality as I see it includes the political. So um, here's the thing. If you're going to read my novel because you want to be moved, um, you want my novel to tell you exactly how to act, don't read my novel. Okay, don't read my novel to tell you how to act. You need to figure that out. I don't think my novel's gonna help you, you know, to figure out specifically how you're going to be. What my novel can do is um, maybe trigger some things, trigger some <coughs> ways of thinking, give you some information. Uh, my, novel act, my novels are all very, very confusing. They require you to get lost. Mm -hmm. Not a single novel, maybe bibliolepsy. Maybe bibliolepsy, actually. You don't get lost in bibliolepsy. Because um, bibliolepsy is just a series of, um, uh, as a reader, just a series of, of um, sexual encounters with poets. So that's just fun. Um, so <laughs> it's very revolutionary. Um, but I think, I think there's an aspect of writing where I want the writer, I want the reader to go with the novel and have an experience in the novel where you actually have, your, you bodily have to go, well, what's going on, I don't really get it. And, and from there, the bodily, for me, I hope, there's a response to, to narrative that makes you think, you know. Um, but I didn't, I didn't get, my belief that activism matters from books. I got it really from the fact that I was often very angry <laughs> and I wanted to do something. And I read books a lot and a lot of books made me think, 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 think. Um, and when someone, let's say, from the movement told me, why are you reading Virginia Woolf and not political economy? I would say, fuck you, I'm reading Virginia Woolf. That, does, that doesn't mean that uh, reading Virginia Woolf is actually a very, very powerful a way of thinking about um, how to be, uh, like, how to relate to the world, you know. So, but, but my activism um, lay in the fact that everything for me needs to be, um, needs to be seen as, I, will, I, I read Virginia Woolf for the ways in which her, her concept of consciousness actually could be um, useful in thinking about uh, how to, um, how, you can read everything from a Marxist or Maoist lens powerfully. You just have to be in that. Um, it, for me, you have to think politically all the time. Mm -hmm. And we have time for one more question. Um, I have two questions. Do you cook adobo? And then, what do you use in ratios? Um, okay, here's here's the thing. I have never been the cook in my family. Always, always, I my partner always is the cook. They're always great. That my partner is a really good cook. He makes the adobo really well. Hello, Ken. Um, since they're since it's um, here, there seems to be a podcast here. Ken Byrne, who's Irish, makes very good adobo. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Um, I, if I make adobo, I, I use um, purple yams recipe. So I don't, I don't know exactly how to make it. I just, I'm very text oriented. I follow the text. So I just follow the recipe of Romi Dorotan. Romi Dorotan. Um, so I think you should, purple yam, Romi Dorotan, port sparing adobo, very good. <laughs> But I don't cook. <laughs> it's not my job. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you, for being here tonight. Thank you, all of you, for being here for this incredible discussion. A big round of applause for This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.